Lord, thank you. Thank you for what we have been able to do the last 35 minutes. We love, we love to sing to you and to hear your word read and to pray. God, thank you for this. Thank you for this time now that we get to sit under your word preached. I pray you would change all of us. God, I pray that you would help us to listen as your servants, as you speak to us. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to Acts 4. Uh, We finished chapter 3 last week. Now, even though we begin a new chapter of Acts today, we do not begin a new story. Uh, The story of chapter 3 continues in chapter 4. So we're still in the temple in Jerusalem, several weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection. And as Acts 4 begins, we find Peter and John are still testifying about Christ to this large crowd of Jews who had come to the temple. And standing right beside Peter and John while they preach is a man who had been crippled his entire life, but was miraculously healed just hours earlier after an encounter with Peter. And that's why there is this big temple crowd around the apostles. Uh, They're dumbfounded because they see the formerly lame beggar whom they recognize, and he's now walking and jumping up and down while he's praising God. And so all these people rush to the apostles and wonder, how did this happen? And so Peter told them. He said, Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead, God glorified, and this man was healed in the name of Jesus, because Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah and the King and the one that God promised would come through all his prophets. And so Peter said to the crowd, you all must now repent of your sins, turn back to God by faith in Christ, and if you do, God will wipe away all your sins because of what Jesus did when he suffered for his people on the cross. Now eventually this large spectacle in the temple uh, caught the attention of the higher-ups there, and we could see that coming. Uh, If there's a big scene on the factory floor, eventually boss is going to show up. And that's what happens in our text today. The temple authorities investigate this major disturbance in their temple, and they're not happy. And so our friends, the apostles, all of a sudden are in serious trouble for the name of Jesus. And this leads to them being put on trial for the name of Jesus, and that becomes the opportunity by which they boldly proclaim that salvation is only in the name of Jesus. That's what we'll see in this passage. So look down at verse 1 and see the chapter's first scene, in trouble for the name of Jesus. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple And the Sadducees came upon them. Okay, who were those guys? Well, the captain of the temple was the the person in charge of temple police. He was supposed to maintain law and order in the holy place. He was second in authority in the temple. He ranked only under the high priest. And then the priests who came, well, these were the people who actually carried out the business 
in the temple. They offered the sacrifices. Uh, Some would lead in prayers or singing. Some were tasked with teaching the law. Some provided security for the temple. So just the priests were the sacred workers who carried out the sacred work that happened in this sacred place. And then with them, the Sadducees who came, there's some overlap in these groups. The Sadducees were um, a, a political party, basically, but a Jewish priestly sect. They had significant political influence in Jerusalem. And that's because they were cozy with the Roman rulers. They were very comfortable with the, the current setup then in Israel under the, the leadership of the Roman Empire because uh, the Roman rulers preserved their high status in the land. And in fact, the Roman rulers would appoint the Jewish high priest at this time always from among the Sadducees. So they had a good thing going in, in their mind, and uh, they did not want anyone to rock the boat and mess up uh, the high status they enjoyed in Jerusalem at this time. So the name of Jesus was an affront to them. And you'll note that's still true today, that those who are living to gain or to keep worldly prestige, the name of Jesus will be an affront to them. So so here in verse 1, rushing over to these apostles come the people who are in charge of the temple. And, and they investigate this big to-do that, that's happening. They get close enough to hear some guy yelling something about Jesus and the resurrection. And that's especially offensive to the Sadducees because they don't believe there is any resurrection. And that's why we read what we do in verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now notice in that verse they were annoyed by two things. And even before they were annoyed by what Peter and John were teaching, the resurrection, they were first just annoyed because they were teaching in the first place. That was part of their job, their duties, their priestly duties, to speak to the people about God on behalf of God. These unauthorized teachers were usurping their roles. And so Peter's sermon then implicitly is a challenge to their authority. And Peter is about to explicitly challenge their authority in a little bit. So the authorities, they take swift action. They've they've got Peter and John arrested. So if you look at verse 3, you'll see that. It reads, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. It's too late to call together the temple council. So they put them in prison where they couldn't do any harm, And we'll just deal with these guys in the morning. So they effectively put a stop to the big preaching rally about Jesus, but they got there too late. The damage had already been done. Look at verse 4. But many, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five Jesus was building his church, and the temple authorities were not going to prevail against him. Many heard, many believed the message of salvation in Christ, and they were added to the church. You see, the gospel, from, from the earliest days that the gospel went forth, it spread 
It's saved despite stiff opposition. That is still the case. There are many anti-Christ governments in the world today who are seeing the gospel spread under their nose, under their rule, despite their opposition. Many believed. I mean, these numbers are incredible. Remember Acts 2, right after Christ sent the Holy Spirit to fill all the disciples, Peter proclaimed Jesus, and then about 3,000 souls were saved and, and added to the 120 that were already part of that original nucleus of the church. Well, after this second Spirit-empowered sermon of Peter in Acts 3, the number of men who believe uh, and becomes part of the church, that number shoots up to about 5,000. And verse 4 probably only includes the men in that count. And if that's the case, then, then adding also however many women and children have believed in Christ through the preaching of the gospel, it means the church's number is probably now over 10,000. Two sermons. When God chooses for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go out in the power of the Spirit, really, really, really amazing things can happen. Pray for that. Learn this also from verse 4. Uh, whenever you see people in trouble for the name of Jesus, you should never assume that means any of the plans of Jesus to save are in trouble. The gospel goes forth. Well, the next verse, uh, verse 5, picks up the story. The next morning, after they spent the night in prison, and that begins the next main scene of the story, on trial for the name of Jesus. On trial for the name of Jesus. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So if we ask someone uh, living in Jerusalem at this time to write out a list for us of all the big Jewish religious authorities of that day, we would, I think, have something close to verses 5 and 6. These are all, all the big guns, the top of the top in the temple, the leaders of the Jews. And I think Luke lists them all out like this in these two verses to underline how formidable the opposition was to the apostles and to the gospel message and, and to show us that it still was no match for our saving Lord. Rulers, elders, scribes, the high priest, his family members... Well, this collection of people was almost certainly um, what, what's called the Sanhedrin. It was like the Jewish Supreme Court or Senate of that day, made up of various priestly authorities and also some Jews who devoted themselves to studying God's law according to their traditions. And this council oversaw all of the internal affairs of the Jewish nation at this time, of course, under Roman authority. Most in the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. A few, especially the scribes that are mentioned, were Pharisees. The high priest was the chair, and they, they would convene either in the temple itself or, or right beside it. 
And traditionally, they would sit in a big semicircle, 71 of them, so they could all see each other. And so the person standing on trial before them could see each one of them. And they bring Peter and John out into the middle of their imposing ring, and they begin to interrogate them about what had happened the day before. See that in verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? They demand answers. Right? Tell us. Tell us how you healed the lame man yesterday. And tell us what makes you think you have the authority to teach in the temple like that. Well, I think the way that this trial was coming together, uh, the high priest might as well have said to the apostles, please now tell us also about this Jesus you proclaimed to the crowd yesterday. And the Lord is opening another wide door for Christ to be proclaimed. And the next verse tells us that, that the Lord also worked in his servant Peter to give him the courage to take this opportunity. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. Right? Do, do you see how God is orchestrating this? He's working around his people to give opportunity to witness and at the same time, he's working in his people to give boldness to, to do it. Right? The council asked Peter, tell us by what name you did this. And then the Lord filled Peter with the Holy Spirit. This, this is instructive. You should pray that God would work around you and in you to use you as a witness. And neither of those things are too hard for God God would be pleased if you would pray that to him regularly. So in verse 8, right, Peter began by respectfully addressing the council. And then in verse 9, he uh, directly answers their question. Look at verse 9. Well, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, so stop right there. Uh, Peter's opening statement, not so subtly, asserts his own innocence, doesn't it? Right? He says, well, let, let's all remember why I'm here. Let's be clear what led to this moment. I spent last night in a prison. I'm here on trial like a criminal. For what? For a good deed done to a crippled man? Now that that's established, I would be glad to testify to you about the power that healed this man. And he does in verse 10. Look there. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Well, this is quite something. The man on the witness stand starts to prosecute the judges of the court for their guilt. This trial backfired. Uh, Peter says, I, I admit I'm guilty of doing a good deed, healing a lame man, a deed carried out in the name and power of Jesus. And this Jesus is the man from Nazareth whom you are guilty. 
of killing. But God raised him from the dead. And the good health of the person standing before you is a sign that God did raise Christ after you crucified him. The resurrected Jesus healed this man. Now, if you've been at church the last couple of Sundays, verse 10 should all sound very familiar to you. Peter said these same things yesterday in Acts 3 when he preached to the big crowd who who gathered around him right after the healing. So note that even though his audience in the temple is very different now than it was the day before, and certainly his audience's enthusiasm and receptivity for his message is very different than it was yesterday, still the core message is the same. Christ crucified and risen. Am I surrounded by a big crowd eager to listen to me because of a miracle? Peter sees there an opportunity for the gospel. Am I on trial before a, a group of powerful people who find my message annoying and troubling and who want to condemn me? Peter sees there an opportunity for the gospel, just the same. Both are opportunities to serve God and live as a witness. Miracles and opposition. Acts 3 and Acts 4. Good deeds and hardships. When you're getting praised for doing well or getting accused of doing wrong, in both seasons you have opportunity to live for the gospel, to speak it and to adorn it. Now, I find this really encouraging and also very challenging, that even though the the scenes of chapters 3 and 4 look very different, they sound very similar. Christ is proclaimed. And in God's providence, it is very often the case that opposition to the gospel leads to opportunities for the gospel. That's what we see here. I think perhaps especially... If ever you are being opposed somehow for your faith or thought strange for it or or being treated like an annoyance for it, perhaps then especially you should keep your eyes peeled for an open door for gospel ministry. Perhaps especially then you should put on as shoes for your feet the readiness of the gospel of peace. The Lord often works this way. Well, if in verse 10, Peter just basically repeats what he said about Jesus to the crowd in the last chapter, what Peter says next is not just material he's recycling from the previous day's sermon. What's next is new, and it's truth about Jesus that's especially suited for those he's talking to now, the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem and the leaders and authorities in, in the temple. And these last two verses give us a final main point for our passage. We've seen Peter in trouble for the name of Jesus, and then on trial for the name of Jesus, and now we hear him proclaim salvation only in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 11. Peter breaks new ground in saying this, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become 
the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone was the large, most important stone used at the base of a building. And strategically, it's placed at a corner. It it supports two main walls. It's the stone you would want to start building with and around. And so Jesus, as the cornerstone, connotes the great honor that God has given him. And also, perhaps, that God is starting a new work in the world around him. Peter tells the leading priests and religious rulers that you are builders, and you have built poorly because you cast aside the cornerstone. There can't be a bigger construction blunder than that. But God reclaimed what you rejected. He raised Jesus after you crucified him, and then God put him in the highest place, to give Him preeminence in all things. He exalted Christ to His own right hand, to His own throne in heaven, and and established Him as the Lord and as Christ. So Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone that God has set down. Nathan read from 1 Peter 2. Whoever believes upon Christ is built on top of him, and that person will never be put to shame. It was uh, fitting for Peter to call the people listening to him on that day builders. Uh, At this time in Jewish history, builders was an established metaphor that referred to leaders and teachers, and that's who Peter's talking to, isn't it? And also, calling these leaders and teachers builders is probably meant to remind us that that their authority was tied to the special roles they had in this special building, the temple in Jerusalem. And one commentator suggested that this this temple connection with, with this verse would be especially obvious because parts of the temple were being worked on at this time, were being built upon around them. And so the imagery here is is leading God's people being compared to building a temple. But because the priests and elders and scribes rejected the cornerstone, they cannot build a true temple of God, which means they can't lead people into God's presence. They can't lead people to worship God in truth. They can't lead people in offering sacrifices to God for sins. Because they rejected the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of what is truly God's temple now. Jesus and and His Spirit-filled body, Christians, is now the holy place, if I can put it that way. Faith in Jesus is now the place to find God's presence and, and the place to pray from. And the place where God's provision for forgiveness is found. All that happened in the temple, we now find in Jesus. Except the real deal, not just signs and shadows. Ultimately, Peter used this uh, metaphor in this verse about bad builders uh, because it's prophecy from the Old Testament. Peter's quoting Psalm 118 here. I read it to begin the service. Psalm 118, 22 says... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
So when the builders rejected Jesus, they were fulfilling what God foretold would happen, the suffering of Christ. God planned all along to reverse their rejection in resurrection. But, but that also means he planned all along that Jesus would be a stone rejected. That he would be crucified. Jesus came to be rejected by sinners so that sinners could be accepted by God. When Peter cited this Old Testament text, I think this is really uh, interesting. Many of the temple rulers and priests who were listening to him should have immediately had a haunting flashback. They had heard someone else quote this very same verse a few months earlier in this very same place. The cornerstone himself said it. And I think Peter might intentionally be trying to take them back in their minds to this confrontation that Jesus had with them in the temple that they were in just a few days before they arrested Jesus and put him on trial. Uh, just, a, just days before Jesus died, he entered the temple. He drove out those who were selling things in the temple. He overturned the tables of money changers. And then Matthew's gospel tells us that at that time the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So is the lame man miracle of Acts 3 and 4 like a rerun of the temple conflict that happened during Jesus' final week? It's about to seem even more like it. Because after Jesus cleansed the temple and he healed the lame in it, he began teaching in the temple daily so he's effectively then taking the role of the builders from them. And so the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, same guys who were acting in Acts 4, it says they were seeking to destroy him. And then Luke 20 says that, that as Jesus was teaching people in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said, tell us by what authority you do these things. The same guys asked Peter a similar sounding question in Acts 4. By what power, by what name did you do this? Well, Jesus didn't answer their question directly, like Peter. Instead, Jesus told them a parable, which ends with him quoting Psalm 118.22. Like Peter does in Acts 4.11. It's the parable of the wicked tenants. A man hires tenants to oversee a vineyard. And whenever he sends, though, his servants to bring back some of the fruit for him, the tenants beat the servants and send them away empty-handed. And this happens a few times. And so finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants see the owner's son coming, they say, let's kill him. And I'm going to start reading in Luke 20, 15 now, so you can hear where things go from there. Luke 20, 15. Jesus said, And the tenants threw the beloved son out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they, the, the, the priests and the rulers, heard this, they said, Surely not. And in verse 17, this is intense. It says, Jesus looked directly at them 
and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They had heard these words before. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's more Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 8, Daniel 2. Luke 20, 19, after Jesus said these things, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them. And they were right. It was about them. And they hated it. And so they killed Jesus, just like the wicked tenants in the parable. But God raised his beloved son from the dead, and then he sent the same message to these men again in Acts Four. I mean, working through his apostle Peter by his spirit, it's, it's almost as if the Lord Jesus was again standing before the chief priests and elders and rulers in the temple speaking the words of Psalm 118 again to them. And I think they would have understood the message here. Your special roles in God's economy representing God, leading God's people, it's now been given to others. You're no longer tenants managing God's field. You're no longer the builders building God's building. The, ones you re- the one you rejected is now the cornerstone. Those who belong to Christ are those to whom the kingdom of God has been Given because Jesus is the King of God. And by the power of the Spirit, which Christ gives to all His people, we're enabled to produce fruit on the earth for God as faithful tenants for Him and, and His Son. And, and drawing further on the stone metaphor on 1 Peter 2, which Nathan again read earlier, that says that as we come to Christ, He is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then we ourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a spirit-filled house, a temple. So we are now God's holy priesthood who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The old temple system and its leaders have been set aside, and and I think they understood. That's what Jesus and Peter after him were saying was going to happen by these words of, of Psalm 118. Jesus is the cornerstone. So if you're not with Jesus, you are outside of God's house. Now that Christ has come, He is the only way to belong to God, the only way to worship God, the only way to draw near to God, the only way to serve God, the only way to have forgiveness from God, the only way to be in the presence of God, the only way to be included in the people of God and in the kingdom of God. It's all given freely, but only to those who throw themselves in faith upon the cornerstone, Jesus so in Christ, we, we receive all of God's promised blessings. But we should note also that when we are built on top of Him, we're, we're not only given a share in His kingdom, 
and in his temple, we, we also are granted a share in his rejection in this world. As Peter and John found out in Acts 4, receiving Christ means we are united to a stone that's been rejected by men, even today. You will not follow Jesus if what you want most is to avoid rejection from people. No one who who prizes that most in their heart will say, I will follow the man rejected. That's who I want to be with. And that's why Jesus warned us in the Gospels this kind of thing, why he said, consider the cost of discipleship before you walk down that road. Oh, but it's worth it. Because in him, as we sang sang earlier, oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, all of God's promised blessings we receive in Christ. Now, uh, before we move on to the final verse, um, I do also want to invite you to uh, take stock of your efforts as a builder in the kingdom. That is, uh, any way you might be trying to teach others the truth of God, any way you might be trying to lead others to walk with God, we must, to use the, the words of 1 Corinthians 3, we must take care how we build. Be careful to build only on top of the foundation God has laid. And, and what I mean by that is this, don't be satisfied to, to try and minister to others just by talking about, about spiritual things in a vague and general but Jesus-less way. Not just about conservative values or good morals or devotional habits. Build wisely. Teach and lead in an explicitly Christ-centered way. In a Christ-focused way. There is no other foundation but Christ. There is no cornerstone but Christ. And ultimately, there's no salvation apart from Christ. And Peter says that in the next verse. Look look at verse 12 now. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is sometimes called the exclusivity of Christ. And it's double underlined in this verse. The first part of The verse says, no one else. The second part of the verse says, no other name. Just Jesus. Him only. And in both halves of the verse, the point in particular is that Jesus is the only way to be saved. There's no salvation in anyone else. And there is no other name by which we must be saved. There's just one way you can be rescued from sin and God's judgment for sin, eternal death. And that's not just true for you and me here in a country and culture that that has some Christian history. This is true for all people, all the world over. Yes, even as the question is often 
posed even for the one who's never heard the name of Jesus. Jesus is not just the Western civilization version of God's salvation. He is God's cornerstone. No one can dwell in the house of God apart from faith in Him. Only Jesus can make sinners clean and holy and counted righteous before God. And verse 12 emphasized the, the universal scope of the exclusivity of Christ, which, which sounds like an oxymoron, but, but you'll understand what I mean here. Verse 12 says, there's no other name under heaven. That refers to all places on earth. And there is no other name given among men, verse 12 says. That refers to all peoples on the earth, every nation, every, every culture. And we just sang the truth of John 14. I, uh, G- Jesus didn't say, I am a way to God, a truth about God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. So no one, meaning not even one, comes to the Father except through me. When, when Peter says in verse 12, there's no other name by which we must be saved, that should remind you of what Peter said in his first sermon in Acts, Acts 2, specifically 2 verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's making a similar point here, isn't he? But it's not exactly the same. Here's the difference. 221, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. 412, only those who call on the name of the Lord are. Everyone who calls on Christ has salvation. No one who doesn't does. There is one mediator between God and man. Now, believing the Bible on this point that Jesus is the only way to be saved, that is a sure way to earn for yourself worldly rejection. Uh, if you say, Jesus is, is my Savior, few will push back against you. If you say, Jesus is the only Savior for anyone, that doesn't fly. We live in an age where self-determinism is the highest ideal Choose your own spirituality is in vogue. People say, I'm spiritual but not religious, by which they mean, I, I cast, I'm not bound by any you know, traditional beliefs. I just choose for myself the religious things I believe and do. As if there are many paths up God's holy mountain, but they all end up in the same place at the top, safe with God. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's one path that leads to life, and it says it's narrow and has a narrow gate. Now, the fundamental reason that's true is that salvation can only come from God. Only God can save us. We can't save ourselves. Sinners can't choose for themselves how they can be saved. Sinners can't remove their own sins before God. God must be the one to save us. Salvation must be a gift God gives us. The way of salvation must be a truth God reveals to us. The work of salvation must be God's accomplishment. Psalm 146, 3. Put no trust in princes. 
in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Psalm 60, 11. Psalm 108, 12. Vain is the salvation of man. Deliverance by man is in vain. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there's no salvation outside the name of Jesus because Jesus is the Lord. A- Acts 4.12 simply gets more specific than Acts 2.21 about who God is. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the incarnation of the Son of God, the, the Son who is God, one with His Father. Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the only God. And several times in Scripture, God says directly, I am the Lord, apart from me there's no Savior. This is the ultimate ground of the exclusivity of Christ. There's one God, and God's the only one who can save us. The death and resurrection of Jesus is how God came to save us. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, 2 Corinthians 5.19. And God is, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Like Peter said in verse 12, the saving name of Jesus is, is given for all who are under heaven. So even though salvation passes through one narrow gate and under one single name, people from every place under heaven may enter salvation through that name by calling on Him. It's not just for one particular people. God has personally come to save us. God has personally come to suffer for us so that He could give us a share in His own personal blessedness. This is the best news. The fact that there is a name under heaven given to men so that we can be saved. That that is so unbelievably kind and merciful of God. How could sinners like us who, who deserve eternal punishment for our sins, how could we ever be put off that there's only one way that we can be right with God and instead of weeping with joy that there is a way, that there is a way and it's a finished salvation and a free gift of God? It is pride. It is pride for us to argue against God's word because he doesn't say that sinners can choose some other way or any way to be saved instead of this way that he's provided, that he's done, his own beloved son. So this truth of verse 12, this is not news that we should bristle at. The truth of verse 12 should make our hearts sing with joy. There is salvation in the name of Jesus. We deserve zero names. God has given us an all-sufficient name. The name of Jesus saves, and that's why the name of Jesus is worth any trouble or any trial that it might cause you in this life. And if you put your faith in Christ, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's because from another angle, you are part of His house. 
a living stone permanently built on top of God's immovable cornerstone. God, thank you for this good news. You have given us such a good news for me to preach, such a good news for us all to hope in, such a good news that is sufficient to save sinners from every nation. And we know that that's your plan. God, I pray that you would humble us. God, I pray that you would help us to see in greater measure, not just the the truthfulness of the salvation that's offered in Jesus, but also the goodness of it, and the beauty of it, and the wonder of it, and how gracious you've been. God, thank you for speaking so clearly in your word. I pray that you would um, increase our, our conviction to live in accordance with your word for your glory. Renew our mind according to what we've heard from your word today. We pray this all in Jesus' name, the only mediator. Amen.